Father, I want to thank you for just your presence with us so far. And Lord, we are here, Lord, to worship you. And Lord, as what we have singing with our mouths, what we've declared with our voices, Lord, as we turn to your word, Lord, we, 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 we just do it as an act of worship to you again, Lord. And, and Father, we want to submit ourselves to you. And Lord, we say to you, Lord, we surrender everything. It's all about you, Jesus. Help us to get it. Help us, Lord, for it to sink from our head to our hearts. And we would get this. We would get it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Just to mention, before we forget, tonight the prayer meeting is, we're joining with the guys at Matthew Henry. So it's going to be meeting at Matthew Henry. So um, if you're planning to come along there, if you need a lift down there, come here for about a quarter to your 10 to 6, 10 to 7. Wrong time, 10 to 7. Come early if you want. Um, for, come for the, um, for the evangelism thing. But from then, if you want to lift just to the prayer meeting, come about 10 to 7, and we make sure you get a lift down there as well. So anyway, this morning we are um, going to open our Bibles. We're in Acts chapter 7. We are going to look at the very dramatic ending to the story of Stephen. Last week, Rob, of course, was speaking. He introduced us to Stephen in chapter 6, to a man who is full of the spirit and wisdom. That's Stephen. And now he's been charged. Stephen is standing before the Sanhedrin. He's under charge. And his charge against him is speaking against the temple and the law. So in chapter 7, Stephen begins his defense. And he builds his arguments on four periods of Israel's history. Abraham, Joseph, Moses, and the kings. However, the key point to his speech is the glory of God. He begins with God's glory and he will end powerfully with God's glory. But in fact, all the time that he is speaking, his face is radiating with the glory of God. The presence of God is with him, it is in him, it is on him, so, and, and so much so that Stephen is speaking with such power, but he's also literally radiating God's presence. Quite incredible. So let's have a look at what Stephen had to say. First of all, about Abraham. So we are in Acts chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. There's a lot of Bible today, make no apology for that, but just stick with us as we look at just incredible unfolding of scripture. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? To this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. 
For 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said. And afterwards, they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. Let's stop there for a moment. So Abraham is the founder of the Jewish nation. He's such a greatly respected figure. Now, of course, many of us will know the story of how it unfolds, of how God graciously appeared to him, called him out of heathen darkness and into the light of salvation. And Abraham responds by faith. His relationship to God is one of grace. Abraham was saved by faith, just as you have been saved by faith. It wasn't based on law observation or on circumcision or on the worship in a temple. That all, of course, comes much later. No, Abraham believed in the promises of God and it was faith that saved him. And Stephen's point is simple. God was at work through the faith of a particular person before he was working through a particular um, situation or place. Now, the religious leaders, of course, held Jerusalem and in particular the temple in such importance, but the fact was that God had appeared in Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq, before he'd appeared in Jerusalem. So even though the Jews revered Abraham, they were blind to his simple faith and they, were, they, they had cluttered salvation with man-made traditions. They'd made it about good works and certainly not about faith. And what God was asking for, in fact, what God is still asking for today is for his people to live a life of absolute trust and risky obedience in him. There are no add-ons. There are no extras. It's never been about a temple. It's never been about a building, no matter how magnificent that building may be. It's about Jesus being Lord of your life. That's what Leah was saying. It's Jesus being Lord of your life. You should be fixated, obsessed with your pursuit of Jesus Christ. However, our natural instinct is to try and make ourselves feel safe, secure, in in so many different ways. But God has always called his people to find their security in him, nothing else. To trust in his promises, to live a life of risky obedience. Is that us? Really? Is that how we're living for him? Let's move on. Joseph, verse 9. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. 
he gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palaces. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abram had bought from the son of Hamar at Shechem for a certain sum of money. Now, it's becoming increasingly clear that God's people are not always acting as God wants them to act. The story of Joseph, just like Abraham's story, shows how God works through people of faith long before he works through his temple. But Stephen introduces Joseph for another, to make another point. This Jewish hero was initially rejected as God's messenger. In fact, he was so hated by Joseph's brothers that he was sold as a slave. And to cut a very long story short, I'm hoping you know some of the story, years later he becomes their deliverer and they only recognize Joseph as their deliverer the second time when, he came, when they come to Egypt for food. Hold on to that thought for a moment. Moses, verse 17. As the time drew near for God to fulfill the promise to Abraham, the people, the number of our people in Egypt was greatly increasing. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to work out to work out their, to, sorry, to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Joseph was born and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. Then he was placed outside. Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of Egypt and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people and Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by the Egyptians, by an Egyptian. So he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man, who were, the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me the way in which you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. 
As he went over to take a closer look, he heard the Lord say, I am the Lord of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have sent, I've heard their groans, their groaning, and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses that they, that had, reje- that they had rejected with the words, who made you rulers, ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself, though through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors he received living words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead they rejected him in their hearts and turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we just don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have taken up the tabernacle of Moloch and the stars of your God, Raphael the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I am sending you into exile beyond Babylon. You see, Moses knew that God was going to use him to rescue Israel. But early on, when he first tried to deliver them from Egyptian bondage, Israel rejected Moses. And he had to run for his life. And he, he lived in hiding for 40 years. It was only when Moses came to them a second time, just like in the case of Joseph, that the nation accepted him and that they were set free. And and Stephen's Bible history lesson is packed with punches. Firstly, Israel did not recognize the one God had sent to rescue them. And Stephen's argument was that if that happened for Joseph and if it happened for Moses, perhaps it's happening in the Sanhedrin now. Secondly, the presence of God makes ground holy rather than holy ground making God present. So the temple is nothing special unless God makes it special. And thirdly, Israel had the law, but they did not obey it. And Stephen's argument is that if that happened in the wilderness, it could be happening in the first century. It could be happening today. History repeats itself unfortunately. 
And the main point that Stephen is making is that both Joseph and Moses are illustrations. They are examples of the way in which Israel treats God's messengers and deliverers. And, they tr- and it's exactly the same way in which they have treated Jesus Christ. So when Jesus came for the first time, they rejected him. In fact, they sentenced him to death. They crucified him. But Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He ascended to the Father in heaven. And there's a day coming when Jesus Christ is going to come back again. And when he comes the second time, every tribe, every nation, everyone will recognize who he is. No one will miss him on that day. The bottom line is, it is possible to see God's rescuer without welcoming his authority. To know God's law, but not follow it. To complacently assume that we are part of God's people and actually be under God's judgment. I wonder, are you in danger of that type of complacency? You see, it's about Jesus being Lord of your life. There's no middle ground in this. He's either Lord or he is not. And we should be fixated, we should be absolutely obsessed with our pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. It should be everything to us. Fourth example is the kings. 37. Sorry, 44. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made known as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nation God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Holy One does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet said, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all of these things? And Stephen now focuses in on the accusation that he is trying to destroy the temple. Now we may know that King David was probably the most celebrated of all of Israel's kings. But when when he asks to provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob, God says no. In his sovereign freedom, God has decided it should be David's son and heir who will build the temple. 
In other words, it was God who decided both the how and the when, the tabernacle, but also the temple should be built. In fact, even Solomon realizes that one of the dangers of the draw, jaw-dropping, it's hard to say, jaw-dropping grandeur of the temple was that people would be tempted to think that God is somehow contained within it. It's God's home. This is where God lives. But God cannot be contained in any way. And if we begin to think like that, we create in our understanding a God that is far, 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 far too small. This is precisely what happened in Stephen's day. The religious leaders thought that God lived in a temple and nowhere else. And in their minds, they had boxed God in and they, they had forgotten that the whole earth was merely his footstool. And that God cannot be contained and he certainly cannot be controlled by anyone at all. However, even today, many Christians seem to have convinced themselves that he is smaller than he really is which means they underestimate his power and his authority. Listen, God is glorious. He is awesome. He is all-powerful. And we need to submit ourselves to him, not the other way around. Should we not fall before him in awe and wonder and adoration? As most of us have only ever caught maybe a glimpse of the infinite glory of God, the one who is beyond limits, the one who is self-existent, dependent on nothing, the one who is always consistent, yet a God who comes close. A God who lives with us, with his people. A God who dwells with those who are prepared to give their life to him. Those with a broken and a contrite heart. A clean and holy life. Men and women ready for his service and devoted to honor and to praise his name. Is that us? Do we want that? Just pray for Father. Lord, we want this. Lord, we want even just to consecrate our lives to you, Lord, just in the middle of the sermon. Holy Spirit, come. We need you, Jesus. More of you, Lord. Just minister, Lord, even as we continue to just speak about you, Lord, minister to our hearts. Lord, make us hungry. Lord, thirsty for you, Lord Jesus. Increase our passion. Increase our passion, Lord. Stephen continues. You stiff-necked people. Your hearts and your ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one and now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. Now, don't forget here, Stephen is supposed to be defending himself against this capital charge against him. 
Instead, he goes on the attack. He accuses them of murdering Jesus. He says their, their ancestors have not recognized the rescuing leaders God has sent to them. They've failed to worship God. They've refused to obey God's law. They've succumbed to the temptation of seeking to try and, and constrain him. They've killed his messengers. And Stephen's words to his accuser is so blunt. He tells them, you are continuing in the family business. You're just carrying on with the family tradition. You have disobeyed God's law. You've killed God's promised righteous one. It is literally a damning indictment upon them. Now you may be sitting there thinking, good on you, Stephen. Come on, you tell him. Great job. But we must check our own lives, our own views you may be just as guilty as trying to control God or choosing which of his laws to obey and which to ignore. See, you might like to read the words of Jesus when he tells us, come to me, all you who are wearied and burdened, and I will give you rest. But you prefer to ignore his words when he tells you, if anyone comes after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And you may say you want Jesus, but are there limits to what you're prepared to sacrifice for him? Christ-likeness and the mission of Jesus cannot be done without sacrifice and without suffering. And I worry in the modern church in the UK, we've created a culture of non-committal Christians because we simply don't treasure Jesus enough. That's what it comes down to. So we brush over the impossible wonder and glorious salvation of the cross. I wonder when was the last time? How often have you actually stopped and just meditated on the gospel? When was the last time it brought you to tears? Because of what Jesus Christ has done for you as you joyfully welcome the righteous one, Jesus Christ, accept his complete authority over your life and affirm your courage and your obedience to him and to him alone. When was the last time you did that? See, up to this point in the book of Acts, whenever Christians have been hauled before the courts, God had always enabled them to escape death. Things are about to change. Verse 54 to the end. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. You imagine it. You imagine the scene. At this, they covered their ears and they yelled at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, dragging him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord 
do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Unsurprisingly, the Sanhedrin do not respond well to being called stiff-necked, spirit-resistant murderers. I don't know why. Yet, it's not until verse 57 and Stephen's next words that they begin to stone him. You see, at Jesus' trial, he had promised his accusers that he was the son of man who from now on would be seated at the right hand of God, Luke 22, verse 69. But the suggestion that he is the son of God to whom God had said he would give all authority eternally, prophesied in Daniel chapter 7, 13 to 14, were the very words that condemned Jesus to death. And now as Stephen looks up to heaven, he sees just what Jesus has promised. The Son of Man, Jesus himself, standing at the right hand of God. And for him, it's just a wonderful vision. It's, it's just a great assurance that Jesus is Lord. That the one to whom he's about to give his life for is the one who can give eternal life. And Jesus is standing up. He's got out of his seat and he's standing up to welcome Stephen home to heaven. For the Sanhedrin, this is blasphemy. They simply will not believe that this is true. In fact, they don't want to believe that this is true because if this is true, it means the one that they have murdered is the son of man. So they need Stephen to be shut up. So they pick up some stones and they murder him. And Stephen's provocative unpacking of Israel's history may have been hard for the Sanhedrin to listen to, but ultimately it is Jesus who is the dividing line. Because if he is the son of man, the one who can welcome people into heaven, it changes everything. Everything's different for them. Jesus is always the dividing line. And listen, you can talk about God, you can talk about spirituality, and it doesn't offend many people, but once you talk about Jesus and that he is the way, the truth, and the life, you will get a reaction, and many people will react violently against it because Satan hates any mention of his name. But there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven, given among men, by which we must be saved. People are going to respond in one of two ways to Jesus. Have you noticed this? They'll either respond with repentance and faith, or they will react and reject. In the case of Stephen, the reaction is quite hostile, and when it leads him to become the first Christian martyr. Unfortunately, many thousands upon thousands have followed him, unknown to us, but loved by God, rejected by this world, but welcomed into heaven by Jesus. And the thing that we need to understand is that when God's people have a clear view of who Jesus is and how he stands ready to welcome his people home, they can die in peace with great confidence and even praying forgiveness on those who are killing them. And listen, right now, 
even as I speak. Somewhere in the world is a brother or sister in Christ who is facing martyrdom at this very moment. That's the reality of this. Men and women like Jim Elliot. Jim, who was martyred in Ecuador by an indigenous tribe. This is what he wrote in his journal many years before. He says, I seek not long life, but a full one like you, Jesus Christ. Two years later, he wrote, I must not think it strange if God takes in youth those who I would have kept on earth till they were older. I like this. God is peopling eternity. And I must not resist him to old men or women. And like Stephen, Jim Elliot and his four friends were called home to heaven on the 8th of January, 1956, slain by the people that they were trying to reach. But what happened to that tribe since then is proof that the blood of the martyrs is indeed the very seed of the church. For as many of those have since then become and turned to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelations 2.10 reminds us to be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as a victor's crown. But the effects of Stephen's death have got many implications. Obviously, many great implications for the early church. It was quite immense for them. But there are also implications even for the church today. You see, the opposition and the persecution of that early church prevented the church from just becoming a Jewish sect and encouraged the Great Commission, but also the commissioning of Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, so the message that began with the Jews would be taken to the Samaritans and then taken to the Gentiles. That's us, by the way. And we should be forever thankful. But Stephen's death didn't just have implications for the church, it had implications for individuals as well. For one man standing there, the death of Stephen was life-changing. For Saul, who later became Paul, it eventually meant salvation. There's little doubt in my mind that Stephen's message, prayers, and glorious death was used by the Holy Spirit to prepare Paul for his own meeting with Jesus in Acts chapter 9. We'll come to that later, of course. But what about you and me? See, God does not call all of us to be martyrs but he does call all of us to be living sacrifices, Romans 12, 1 and 2. And in some respects, maybe it's harder to live for Christ, maybe even than to die for him. And there is this ongoing cost of self-denial and even the need to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus Christ. But listen, if you're willing to live for him, you will be prepared to die for him if that is what he asks of you. So as I finish, I just want to ask, the question, if Stephen was able to stand here this morning and just speak to you, I wonder what he would say. This is what I think Stephen would say to you. First is this. The gospel of Jesus is the best news ever. Ever. God planned God prophesied, God performed a ransom for sinners. And all the prophets, all the messengers, Old and New Testament were pointing to the one 
Jesus is the one and he embraced the plans. He became your sacrifice for sin. He willingly suffered rejection and murder. He was raised from the dead. Listen, the message of the Bible is the most important, the most glorious, the most Jesus-exalting news. There is no better news. There's no better news. And this morning, I want to urge you to see Jesus and his words as the most treasured possession of all. I think that's what Stephen would say to you this morning. Jesus is more desirable than all of the possessions and all of the praise of this world. The second thing I think he would say to you is that he would warn you. See, there's some of you who struggle to follow Jesus because you think it's just too costly. You don't want to give up certain things. You don't want to stop certain things. But listen, if you love this world more than you love Jesus, it will cost your life forever. Jesus is coming back. And listen, he's not coming back to negotiate. He's not coming back to do a deal with you. Listen, no amount of possessions will be able to buy back your life on that day. And listen, even if you had the whole world, if somehow you're able to gain everything around you, just buy it all up, it's all yours, you could not exchange it for eternity. So let's say we come into this world naked, we will leave naked. Listen, no praise, no possession you receive in this life will make up for his eternal disapproval. I think Stephen would warn us. The third thing I think Stephen would say to us, he'd want to promise you joy. See, whenever you deny in this life it bears no comparison to the joy of walking with Jesus Christ, even if that involves suffering now. To, the, to, to, to know the glory that you will have with him in heaven, of course, one day is just incomparable. And too often we take verses like Matthew 16, 24 to 26, if anyone comes after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And we focus in on the self-denial and and as if as Christians that's all life is just about punishing ourselves and we think that we have to live without the inexpressible and glorious joy that we read about in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 8 listen you don't I think it's John Piper who says that when Jesus tells us to deny ourselves and to take up our cross, the self-denial that Jesus is referring to in those verses is the denial of the old self. It's the old man, the man that needs to be put to death. The man you walk away from, need to leave behind. And listen, if, if we keep looking at him, it, we're, just bent, we're just bent on suicide. It is denial of the self that is bent on the insane thought that of, if we own this world, it is better than belonging to the risen son of man. It's a denial of self that is obsessed with the utter foolishness of craving the approval of an adulterous generation over the approval of Jesus, God, the Father, the Holy Spirit, and the millions of holy angels. But the news... 
the unspeakable good news is that you will find joy in Christ Jesus. Listen, you want to find joy in Christ Jesus. I think that's what Stephen will want to tell you this morning. And the last thing I think Stephen would want to say to us, he'd want us to be honest about suffering. Be like Jesus. Mark 13, verses 9 to 13. Be like Paul in Acts 14, 21 and 22. Be like Stephen in chapter 7 here. But make sure you know from the start you need to count the cost. Listen, we want to see disciples. We want to see men and women who are choosing to follow Jesus with everything that they have to be. Make sure that he is absolute Lord of their life. It's not a little bit of this and a little bit of Jesus. That's not Christianity. That's not following him. You need to count the cost. Because it is through our tribulation that we will enter the kingdom and you will suffer in this life. I think Stephen would want to cry out to us and say, listen, if the sovereign, all-governing God was weaving a fabric of beauty and hope out of suffering, rejection and murder and the resurrection of his son, will he not weave out of the torn pieces and the tangled threads of your life a beautiful tapestry for his glory? I think he will. When Les came up before, he's speaking very prophetically, I believe, across us. Because for some of you guys, it's time to get serious about Jesus. It's easy on the fence. It's easy not to follow all of God's word. It's easy to choose the little bits we like. Listen, it's time to give everything over to him. That's when we see things change, not just in our own lives, but in our church, in our city. And we, we just get apathetic, don't we? We get lazy in our faith. And you go through the motions. But I worry as you go through the motions, are we really following Jesus at all? Are you willing to commit to him? An old hymn. All to Jesus I surrender. Make me saviour, holy thine. It's a hard thing to say. Let me feel the Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray, Spirit of God, come. We, we thank you for your presence. But Lord, we, we just, we want more. Holy, let me feel the Holy Spirit truly know that thou art mine. All to Jesus I surrender. Lord, I give myself to thee. Fill me with thy love and power. Let thy blessing fall on me. All to Jesus I surrender. Now I feel the sacred flame. Oh, the joy of full salvation. Glory, glory to his name. You stand with me for a moment. I want to pray over us.
It's a very sobering passage. Have you ever wondered sometimes if, if you stood before a jury accused of following Jesus, would there be enough evidence to convict you? <laughs> Does that ever worry you? I hope in my case there'd be enough. I hope in all of our cases there'd be enough. And Lord, I want to pray, Spirit of God, as you move from around this building, Lord, we just don't want the ordinary. Lord, we've, we, we've done the ordinary. Lord, we, we don't want any manufactured stuff either, Lord. We want the authentic. We want you to come in power. Lord, as you did in Acts, as you did, Lord, in that early church, as you moved, Lord, in mighty power across that, those people as they gathered together, Lord, you're working and you're moving, Lord. And yes, we understand, Lord, there's gonna be some struggles and some suffering and some persecution. Father, as we count the cost this morning, I would urge you to count the cost. Because it's going to cost you. Some of it may, it may, God forbid, it may cost our lives at some point. But it costs sacrifice. It costs to stand for Jesus. And we, we don't talk about this because, well, we, we, we know God is love and we, we forget that actually we, there's a cost that comes with giving up stuff because you need to give up some stuff if you want to truly commit your life to Jesus Christ. You may have prayed a prayer years ago Listen, it's by grace we're saved. I'm not under, I'm not, I'm not, listen, I'm not, I'm not going into error here. Stick with me. It's by grace we're saved. We call on him and listen, he does a marvelous work. But out of his grace, there should be a heart that is changed, that just seeks him, that is just pursuing him, that is just passionate, passionate for him. If, that, if that's not you, you know if that's not how you describe your walk with Jesus Christ, listen, it's time to repent. It's time to realign your heart with his heart. So I'm gonna pray, you pray as I pray. If you're serious, if you've prepared to count the cost, prepared to follow, Lord Jesus, Lord, we commit ourselves to you. All to Jesus I surrender. You say, can you say that? If you're able to say it with me, so let's, let's speak it out loud. All to Jesus I surrender. Lord Jesus, I give my life to you. Lord Jesus, I give my life to you afresh. Lord, where there is sin that needs to be dealt with, Lord, I want to repent of it now. In the name of Jesus Christ. Knowing, Lord, it's by your grace that you just flood me with your just wonderful forgiveness. Lord, if there are things that I need to put right with other people, Lord, I want to confess that to you now. Lord, if there are things that I need to stop and give up so that you can reign 100% in my life. Lord, I, I commit that to you now. Lord, I make a declaration before you now to mean business with you going forward. I want to follow you, Jesus. And I want to pray now, Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. 
Just reach out, just receive the Spirit. Listen, we need to be baptized, filled with the Spirit. Lord, send your Spirit. Come and move across our church, Lord. Come and impact us. Come and change us, Lord. Holy Spirit, come. Come and minister to hearts. Lord, come and set people free this morning. Lord, come and bring deliverance this morning. In the name of Jesus. Or whatever's holding us back, Lord, we just speak against it in the name of Jesus. And Lord, come. Come, Spirit of God. Just receive. Just receive from you.